Thank you, Lord, for this wonderful day you've given us, Lord. Thank you for us, for your chief sermons, Lord. I pray that you bless them and give them your word, Lord, and wisdom. I pray that you open up our hearts and ears, Lord, and they can take your word. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Well, good morning, everyone. We're, um, and today we're into Genesis chapter 6. Am I on? I think I'm on. Yep. So we're in Genesis chapter 6 today. And um, this is a, a really interesting topic in a, in a book. It's a, well, this section of passage. So we're only going to be dealing with eight verses. But realistically, we're only going to be able to have time to deal with the first four. So it's Genesis chapter 6. And um, we're going to be dealing with the first, probably, basically the first four verses. There's lots of um, interesting things in here and lots of controversial things as well. So that's what makes it quite interesting. Um, there's um, quite a few different subjects. And there's one big thing which in the way of implication that we're going to, to get to in the end. Um, but today, what's going to be my enemy is time. So what I would love for you to do is that after today that you would go and talk amongst yourselves as well at home. And see whether you agree. So there's probably going to be quite a bit you'd like to disagree with or that you may disagree with. So just have that conversation and things like that. And then um, have, have that discussion with other people in the church as well. Because there's going to be, I'm sure, hopefully, lots in there. So let's just start straight off by turning to Genesis chapter 6. If you've got your swords with you, turn there. We're just going to start reading from verse 1. And it simply says... Now it came to pass when men began to multiply on the face of the earth and daughters were born to them that the sons of God saw the daughters of men, that they were beautiful and took wives for themselves of all whom they chose. And the Lord said, My spirit shall not strive with man forever, for he indeed, for he is indeed flesh, yet his days shall be 120 years. There were giants on the earth in those days, and also afterward when the sons of God came into the daughters of men and bore children to them. Those were mighty men, men of, who were of old, men of renown. Then the Lord saw the wickedness of man was great in the earth, and that every intent of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. And the Lord was sorry that he had made man on the earth, and he was grieved in his heart. So the Lord said, I will destroy man whom I have created from the face of the earth, both man and beast, creeping thing and birds of the air, for I am sorry that I have made them. But Noah found grace in the sight of the Lord, or in the eyes of the Lord. So there we have Genesis chapter 6, verses 1 to 8. So the first thing that we want to do is we're going to be looking at the positioning of Genesis chapter 6. Funny enough, it's straight after Genesis chapter 5, which um, Tom McIver was so pleased to be given. The um, Genesis chapter 5 account, and he picked up and and he died. <laughs> he was fantastic, and I had a bit of a dig with him last week as well as we talked about it and said, man, could you, is there nothing else in Genesis 5? <laughs> no, he does absolutely amazing. So that's where it sits, after the genealogy of Genesis chapter 5, starting from, it's a genealogy of Adam through to Noah's three sons. So that's what Genesis 5 is positioning. Now that's going to be important because of what's going to be happening in Genesis chapter 6. So it's after 5, but in these first four verses especially, is something that happens from the beginning of mankind through to such a devastating effect 
that in four verses we end up after this in verse 9 and onwards with the flood of the whole earth and that all humanity would be wiped out and also beasts of the field apart from those that were on the boat. So something happens from the beginning that causes such great effect and it's found in these four verses. That's where all this is happening in four verses of the Bible that would pre, the preceding thing is the genealogy, these four verses and then out, the, out of the these four verses comes the devastating effect that we have known as the flood. So that's the Genesis 6 and where it positions itself. Now there is a point of debate in this as well, and that is what is the meaning of this passage? And it's all going to revolve around the identification of exactly what kind of intermarriage is spoken about here in, in Genesis chapter 6. And some will say that it's the, the intermarriage between the two lines of Adam, represented by the godly Sethites marrying into the ungodly Canaanites. And I just want to take you there so you can have a look at it for yourselves. This is where the the view comes from. Genesis chapter 4, in verse 25, if you just remember Adam and Eve, the first created beings, they have their first son, who is Cain. And then Cain, they have their second son, who is Abel, and Cain kills Abel. And then after a period of time, they have their third son, who is called Seth. So Genesis chapter 4, verse 25, and Adam knew um, his wife again, and she bore a son and named him Seth. She said, for God, has, or for God has appointed another seed for me instead of Abel, whom Cain killed. And as for Seth, to him also a son was born, and he named him Enosh. Then men began to call on the name of the Lord. So this view says that, as you can see, that after the time of Seth, that the men of his son Enosh, and from then on, this group of lions started to call on the name of the Lord. And then it goes into the genealogy of Genesis chapter 5. And then in Genesis chapter 6, we have this idea, and it's to say that in Genesis chapter 6, in verse 2, that the sons of God is in reference to the godly um, Sethites, who intermarried with the ungodly line of Cain. And as the, un, the godly Sethites married in, it produced um, the result of that and the way that they intermingled and the way that men, men were on the face of the earth, that God decided that he would wipe out the whole entire race. So that's where this view comes from. Now, I do not hold to this view at all, um, and I think it's far too narrow a view when we start going through to see other things that we're going to see as we go through Genesis chapter 6. But I just wanted to let you know that that is a view and something that you can discuss um, as you get time to do so. So just another couple of things in the way of introduction before we get going. Um, I want you to notice in chapter 6, verse 1, it says, Now it came to pass. What's coming to pass? It's going to link the genealogy of Genesis chapter 5 to something that's in Genesis chapter 6, especially, again, those four first, the first four verses of Genesis chapter 6. It came to pass. It's Genesis chapter 5 is dealing with the, the sons of Adam. This is the link. So Genesis chapter 5 is the sons of Adam. And then in Genesis chapter 6, we're going to see a big switch from the sons of Adam to the daughters of Adam. And that's the link. It, came, it has come to pass. And we're going to see that as we carry on. So the first part of Genesis 6 is going to focus on Adam's daughters. So we're going to see now the focus on the female um, portion of humanity in Genesis chapter 6. 
Okay, and just um, one other thing before we, we kick off. It's just this term men in verse 1, and now it says, Genesis 6 again, now it came to pass when men. I just want you to, to look at that word men, and turn with me to Genesis chapter 5 and verse 2. And it says <clears throat> this in Genesis 5, 2. It says, this is God um, who does this. He says, God created, or he created them, what is he saying, male and female, and he blessed them, and he called them mankind. It's one unit. So he's naming that it was males and females. He blessed them. He pulled them together. And what does he call them as one word? What does he call them? Mankind. That word there is Adam. So he called them Adam. What? That's exactly what the word is. And it's the same word that's used in Genesis chapter 1 when you see the word men. So here in Genesis chapter 5 verse Two, he's linking that it's men and women together, and he called them Adam. What the word means is Adam, yep, as a singular person talking about the first person that was created is Adam. But when God uses this term, when he called the, um, the male portion and the female together, and he grouped them, and he clearly says it here in Genesis 5-2, that he called them Adam. That's the word for mankind. Genesis chapter 6 and verse 1 comes to pass, linking the two ideas together, when the word should be, well it is, that's what it's describing, when men, but it's not one particular line of men, but it's rather that it's mankind. So what he's saying, when, it, when men, that's mankind, became to multiply on the face of the earth, so the men would also include the, the sons and the daughters of the Canaanites and the Sethites. This word here doesn't allow it to be split to just the male portion of humanity. And it certainly doesn't let you go down to say that it was just one line and being the line of the Sethites. The word here is exactly that one that's in Genesis 5.2. So it's mankind. Both men and women, both of um, Cain and Seth, began to multiply on the face of the earth. And this is where the switch is going to be. And daughters were born to them. We're now going to focus in on the, the female humanity of the daughters of the son of, or the daughters of Adam. And then in verse 2, we come to the, the big term, which is then it says that the sons of God. <clears throat> so the big thing is the term sons of God. Okay, so this is where the the biggest sort of crunch comes, depending on how you take the statement, is where you're going to place who this passage is talking about. So the, the word here in um, verse 2, the word sons of God is, um, the word here in Hebrew is b'nai Halloween. Now, the reason that we're fit to go to there is that this word is elsewhere used in the Bible, this term, b'nai Halloween. There are other places in the Bible where you have the, the wording sons of God, but this particular phrase in the Hebrew, B'nai Elohim, is also used elsewhere in the Bible, and it always means the same thing. It never means different things. So I just want to take you quickly to where these, where that's found. So if you turn Job chapter 1, Job chapter 1 and verse 6, it says, Now there was a day when the sons of God, exactly the same word, B'nai Elohim, Sons of God came to present themselves before the Lord, and Satan also came among them. In Job chapter 1, 
the sons of God, and that's the thing, is there's no dispute about this from um, most people that are studying it. There's very little dispute at all that it's talking about the sons of God is representing the angelic beings. So the sons of God here is the, the angelic beings, and also Satan is named amongst them who come to be with and um, present themselves before the Lord. Job chapter 2, verse 1. And it says, again, there was a day when the sons of God, exactly the same term, Abinei Elohim, came to present themselves before the Lord, and Satan also came among them to present himself before the Lord. Second time that's used, and exactly the same way. When, when you see this term, and again, there's not dispute amongst this, that it's always talking about angelic beings. The last one, Job chapter 38, I'm just going to read from verse 4. But verse 7 is the, where it comes into. God is dealing with Job, and God says to Job, um, as he gives him the, the questions, Job gets this big, powerful who God is. And he says this in verse 4. Where were you, Job, when I laid the foundations of the earth? Tell me if you have understanding. Who determined its measurements? Surely you know. Or who stretched the line upon it? To what were its foundations fastened, or who laid its cornerstone? Verse 7, when the morning stars sang together, and all the sons of God shouted for joy. When were these people, the sons of God, present? They're present at the foundation. So the, the term, and wherever else it's, um, this term is used in the Bible, it always represents the same thing. The angels that are in heaven, the the angels. So that's what the term references. There's other places, we won't go through them, but there's some other places that it's used in Psalms 29 and verse 1 and verse 89, verse 6. It's a variation to the word. So it's not B'nai Elohim, but it's a variation of that, B'nai Elim, but it's also in reference to angelic beings, and that's found as sons of the mighty. In Psalms 86, verse 2, we also have another variation. And that is also, again, in reference to angels, but it's turned the, the sons of the Most High. But what I'm trying to get you to realize that in the Old Testament, whenever you see the word B'nai Elohim, it is always in representation of angelic beings. Why make Genesis chapter 6, verse 2, the exception to everywhere else that it's used? It's always in reference to the sons of God being angelic beings. The only thing that it is, this is disputed is in Genesis chapter 6. So that's in the Old Testament. It's an exclusive term, meaning that. But let's go to the New Testament. <clears throat> in the New Testament, we have this reference use of other entities beside just the angelic beings. So, But the common element that we're going to find when God uses this term, the sons of God, is that it is something that is directly created by God himself. So, for example, myself, I am not directly created by God. I am something called procreated from my parents. I inherit the sin that was before me. I'm born into sin. I'm procreated. I am not, in that sense, a child of God. Was Adam a child of God? Absolutely. That's what we're told in Luke. He was directly created from God himself. That's why he gets that term, a child of God. Um, the, other question, or the other thing to notice, did Adam stay a child of God when he fell? When he was a sinner, was he still a child of God? 
Well, yes, he is. My question is, if, if one of my sons, and I pray that that doesn't happen, but if they were to go totally away from the Lord and never have anything else to do with the Lord and they were fallen and as far away as they could be from God, would they still be my son? Absolutely they are. And that's the thing. The term sons of God is those things which God directly creates. Now, the angelic beings, especially the demons, the fallen angels, are those that were directly created by God. And that's why we find this term in Genesis chapter 6, verse 2. It says the sons of God. They are fallen angels, but they still have the term the sons of God. Also in the New Testament, we have, so we have Adam. We ourselves, in John chapter 1, verse 12, we are called believers, as believers. We are called children or sons of God, but why? Because we are a new creation. We are born again. It's a direct, creative act of God, which is why we get that, that term being called the sons of God. It's the same thing. It's, it's unique, and it's, or it's in the same reference of those things that are directly created. So the term, the sons of God, has the meaning to be directly created by God. Whether you are a fallen angel or you're a, a good angel, whether you're Adam or whether you um, become a child of God, that term is in reference to things that are directly created from God. There is one exception, however, and that exception is to the uniqueness of the only begotten Son of God. John 3.16, you know it well, it says, For God so loved the world that he what? He gave his only begotten, or one and only. The difference between the Son of God is in his uniqueness. We've been talking about the angels being the sons of God. We've been saying that um, Adam, also that we as children, John 3.16 says there is only one Son of God, and the uniqueness is, is not at all that he's trying to reference that Jesus was created by God. But in that, he's saying the reason that he's called the one and only is because of his uniqueness as God himself, who became man, who was a son. And that's why Jesus himself always referenced himself as what? The son of man. It's in his uniqueness and the identity of who he was as a person. That's the only time that you'll see the word um, sons of God or son of God as something that's different that wasn't directly created. Okay, back to Genesis chapter 6. The big thing is, if we jump into verse 2, it says that the sons of God saw the daughters of men, and they were beautiful, and they took wives for themselves of all whom they chose. But this just leaves us with questions, lots of questions. First of all, we see, aren't angels sexless? By looking at Matthew chapter 22 and verse 30, if this is true that the angels, we're talking about the sons of God being fallen or demons, aren't they sexless? Well, if that's true, how could they um, go into the woman or the daughters of men? How is that possible? So in Matthew chapter 22 and verse 30, this is where the argument comes from, is that for in the resurrection they neither marry nor are given in marriage, but are like the angels of God in heaven. The question is when it's talking about us as believers. When we go from this earth and we are going to be resurrected, we are neither going to be in marriage or given in marriage. However, where are we now? On this earth. And in this earth, we are given in marriage and we are married. So this verse is talking about those things that are going to happen in the future, and it's in comparison with the, the holy angels. 
This act of Genesis chapter 6 doesn't happen in the heavens, but what happens is that the sons of God come down into the daughters of men. It's something that only happens and it's unique. It's in Genesis chapter 6, but it's to do with when the angels do appear on the earth, as we've got from these other verses, which we're not going to go to, but the, men, the angels are always represented as young men. That's the way that they're viewed, and, and there's some scriptures for it if you get time to have a look at them. But they're always represented when they're seen and they're in their appearance as young men who were seen by others and they were taken in that way. Sadly, this doesn't help, it just gives us more questions. The next question, well, why? If this is true, Genesis 6, as I'm stating, is that the demons came into the daughters of men. Why? Why would that be the case? What's going on here that they're doing so? And has that happened afterwards? Is that happening today? Did it happen in Jesus' time? Is, is this, if we're using that term, that's the question. Sadly, it gives more questions. So the question is why? I want you to notice in Genesis chapter 6, verse 2, just these words that happened here. First of all, that these fallen angels, these sons of God, saw the daughters of men. That's the first thing they saw. So they saw them, and then after that, that they were beautiful. Okay, So they were pleasant, they were good, they were beautiful, it was attractive. So they saw the attractiveness of them, and what did they do? They took. Okay, So that's what it says to them. So let's go there to, to try and figure out. And what I want you to do is jump back to Genesis chapter 1. And we're going to look at verse 28. Genesis chapter 1 and verse 28 is something called the Edenic Covenant. Now, in the Bible, we have eight covenants that is named in the Bible. We've got eight. Four of them are found in this book of Genesis. Half of all the, the biblical covenants that we have that are in the Bible, four of them are found right here in the first book of the Bible. And there's no coincidence for that as it builds the foundation. So the first thing we're going to do is just have a quick look at this Edenic covenant to try and figure out what is going on here in Genesis chapter 6. So I'm just going to read verse 28, Genesis chapter 1. Then God blessed them and God said to them, Be fruitful and multiply, fill the earth and subdue it, have dominion over the fish of the sea, over the birds of the air, and over every living thing that moves on the earth. And God said, See, I've given you every herb that yields seed, which is on the face of all the earth, and every tree whose fruit yields his seed. To you it shall be for food. Also, to every beast of the earth, to every bird of the air, and to everything that creeps on the earth, in which there is life, I have given every green herb for food. And it was so. Just in those bullet points that you can see on the PowerPoint, it's just some of the provisions that were in the Edenic Covenant some of the things that were for them to, to do. But I want you to notice in verse um, 17 of Genesis chapter 2, it says another part of the covenant was that, but of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat. For in the day that you eat of it, you shall surely die. This is the Edenic covenant. When we're talking about covenants, it's talking about something that happens in humanity Something majorly changes, something huge changes, and then it goes on to something else. This is what happens for this Edenic covenant. They were without sin, something happens, and then it affects all of humanity. And so that's, the, that's where we get the change from the different covenants especially. So the, 
the first thing is that, yeah, Genesis chapter 2, we've got the, um, the Edenic covenant. And if we just go to the next one, if you remember in Genesis 6-2, they saw these sons of God, that they were beautiful, and they took. I want to show you what happens in Genesis chapter 3 and verse 6. This is the breaking of the covenant. Genesis 3 verse 6, it says, so, we, so when the woman saw that the tree was good for food and it was pleasant to the eyes. She saw it was good and it was pleasant, and what did she do? And it was desirable to make one wise, she took of its fruit and ate. There is the breaking of the something called the Edenic covenant. She saw it was pleasant and she took. And so that's what this... So in taking, um, in taking that, by doing this, she violated both her and Adam. They violated the covenant that was given to them and they broke the barrier that was not to be crossed. There was that barrier. They weren't to take of that fruit and they broke through that barrier and they broke a covenant that was there. Okay, where are we getting to for Genesis chapter 6? The next one is the Adamic covenant. So after the Edenic covenant, that was it. No more would be uh, turned from the Edenic covenant into something called the Adamic covenant. And I'm sorry, we don't, we're not going to at all have time to, to go through um, the covenant of the Adamic one. But it's just to note that in this um, covenant that God addresses specifically the, the ones that were of this covenant. So he names, um, talks about Satan he talks about Eve and he talks about Adam. But like Eve, it's not just representative of her because she says that there will be childbirth and there will be pain in doing so and also things about the husband. That goes through all of, of, all of the, the female line. Also, when it talks of Adam, it talks about toiling of the, the ground and the other things that gets passed on to all the sons of Adam. That's part of it. But what I want to notice is, because it's important for Genesis chapter 6, is the part that talks about Satan. Okay, in Genesis chapter, um, this is the results in Genesis chapter 3 and verse 14. This is God speaking to the serpent. So the Lord said to the serpent, this is to Satan, because you have done this, you are cursed more than all the cattle and more than every beast of the field. And on your belly you shall go and you shall eat dust all the days of your life. Remember what the Edenic covenant had? It said that the man had authority over all the animals. Here, one animal worships its authority over the woman, and that's the serpent. And that's why God says, because you have done this, you are cursed more than all of the other cattle. And it says that on your belly you shall go, meaning that it used to be in an upright position, and now it's on its belly. And that is because of the curse from, that God gives to Satan onto the serpent. And then we have, and you shall eat dust all the days of your life. This has been obviously quite um, lots of controversy saying that snakes don't eat or serpents don't eat dust. What's it talking about? But dust for Jewish, it's an idiom and it always has been for cursedness. Like when, you, when you're cursed, they always get the dust and then sorrow and in grief, it's about that. And that's what this verse is talking about, that, that the, this, the serpent would be more cursed than any other animal which is why it's given that representation of following the dust. But verse 15 is what I want to, to you to see. 
It's the first messianic promise of the Messiah in the Old Testament. And it's got a real importance to Genesis chapter 6. Verse 15 says, and I'm going to put enmity. That is that God is going to put a mutual hatred between two parties. Two parties are going to hate them each other. I'm going to put enmity between Satan, between you being Satan, and between Eve, the woman. Two parties are going to hate each other. And between Satan's offspring, Satan's seed, and Eve's seed. They're going to hate, again, mutual hatred. Then it says, and he, that is the, the offspring of Eve, he, he, sorry, I'll try that again. The next verse is that in, um, part of the verse. It says, he shall bruise your head. That is that Satan is going to, oh, sorry, I'm a bit lost here. I'll try again. Between your seed and her seed, and he being the one that is of the woman, the descendant of the woman, that seed, shall bruise Satan's head. And then it says, and you, that Satan himself, shall bruise his heel. So let me just run through that again because it was so mixed up. It says, I'll put enmity, mutual hatred, between Satan and the woman, and between Satan's offspring and between Eve's offspring. Now Eve's offspring shall bruise Satan's head, and Satan will bruise the heel of the offspring of the woman, of Eve. That's what's described here. What's being directly told to Satan is that someone is going to come through the female line who is going to bruise Satan's head. Now, this is a messianic promise. And if you think what we were even talking about this morning about the cross, that is the most, you know, when we go there, it's just an amazing central theme of what it actually took, that Jesus would die for our sins and that he would pay that price. That result of that was Satan bruising his, the Lord Jesus' heel. Can you imagine what this verse is saying? If the result of Jesus on the death and the suffering and the pain that it took was Satan bruising Jesus' heel, what does it mean when it says that Jesus or the, the seed of the woman is going to crush or to bruise Satan's head? Satan knows that there is a, absolutely that there's going to be a time that the seed of the woman is absolutely going to destroy him. And that gives us the reason of Genesis chapter 6. If we go back there, Genesis chapter 6 verse 2 is the outworking of the promise that through the female line, someone is going to come that will crush Satan's head. And this is Satan's attempt to wipe out or infiltrate all the female portion of humanity because if he can do that, then how can this one come who is the Messiah? And this is exactly the reason of what's happening in Genesis chapter 6, verse 2. That the sons of God saw the daughters of men, that they were beautiful, and they took for themselves all whom they chose. It's the outworking of what they did. And in doing so, they violated the covenant, the barrier that was beset between the angels and humanity. They broke. They were fallen angels, and in sin, they broke a covenant that they weren't to do, and they went into the female portion of humanity. In verse 3, it says, And the Lord said, My spirit, that is my being God, his Holy Spirit shall not strive with man forever. That word there is only used this once in the entire um, Bible, the word strive. 
It's not used anywhere else. And the, the word for strive here is yardon. Oh, sorry, I'll get to the next one. And it means not, it can mean two things in the root word. It can mean not striving in the sense of restraining sin. So they won't restrain sin anymore. It's, it's meet up to its maximum. Or else the other term that it can use is that or the spirit of life which God breathed into man, it's not going to remain in him forever. So that's the two things that this word can represent. That he won't strive in the sense of he's not going to hold back the sin anymore or restrain it, or in the sense that the um, spirit of life which God breathed into man is not going to remain in him. And then he says, yet his days will be 120 years. That is the exact time, 120 years later from this, is where the flood occurs, it takes place, 120 years later. And then we come, we're going to try and race through, verse 4, it says, there were giants in the earth in those days. This is the King James Version. I don't know if you've got the, the NIV, the nearly inspired version, or if you've got the um, King James, which here is wrong, but um, the, the point is, is that in the King James, it says giants. Okay, and the word is, and it's giving us the wrong picture sometimes when we see the word giants. So the giants, the word here, it means, um, it comes from the Septuagint, and a lot of our, our translations into the English, so you've got the Hebrew, which was translated into the Greek, and then from the Greek into various languages, but the Greek Septuagint is a source document where a lot of translations come from, and when they took the Greek, they took this word in, into the English, they had made it um, say the word giants. But the word in Hebrew was called nephilim. Now, if I was just even talking today in Hebrew, you'd be saying like to fall is to nafal. I was walking, so halach div nafal means I walked and I fell. Nafal is to fall. When you have the word im, all that means is there's a plurality of it. So when you hear the word nephilim, all it's saying is the fallen ones, a pluralistic fall. So that's another reason why it's here. It's just talking about these sons of God. So somehow these guys who are called the fallen ones, and what's happened is when they translated the word Nephilim, the fallen ones, into the Greek, they choose the, chose this word, which was um, gigantes. But the reason that they chose that word is not because they were giants. That's not what they were trying to say. Remember, the word means the fallen ones. It doesn't mean that they were giants, but to fall. Why did they pick gigantes? Well, the same word, if you were to use it in the Latin equivalent, is the word titans. And what were titans? They were half God, half men creatures. And that's why they chose the word gigantes, not because they were giants, because in the Greek that's exactly what the word means, that they were half gods and that they were half men. And that's why they chose that word. But when it got translated to English, we see them as just being giants. But that's not the case. They were actually fallen angels who had this power, they were, in verse 4, that they were had power which was, they were mighty men who were of old, even men of renown. They were physically stronger than mankind, and they were also mentally stronger than mankind. These are fallen demonic angels who had their offspring, and they're called the Nephilim. So in verse um, 4 is the statement. If you go back to, remember verse 2 where we left them? First of all, it says the sons of God came into the daughters of men. It's the marriage. 
Then in verse 4, it introduced something totally different. These ones called the Nephilim. Verse 4, it says, there were giants on the earth in those days. It's a statement. The statement is we're introducing something new here. There's these guys called the Nephilim. And then it says, and also afterward, when the sons of God came into the daughters of men, and they bore children to them. The most often thought of this is that when you first look at the passage, that it's saying that there were the Nephilim, the fallen ones, and after they fell, then what happened is that after the flood, there was also these fallen ones that happened later on. But that's not what the verse is saying. The verse is saying, verse 4 is the statement. That is that there were Nephilim on the earth of those days. The question again comes, well, where did these guys come from? It reiterates verse 2 and then describes it. And it says, and also afterward when the sons of God came into the daughters of men. Not that after the flood that there were more people called the Nephilim, but that they came from being produced from verse 2, the sons of God going into the daughters of men. And that's where we get this term, and that's what the verse is talking about, that they were called the Nephilim. The reason we know that is that there's only one other place in the Bible that you're going to find the word Nephilim. It's in Genesis chapter 6, and you'll find it one more time in Numbers chapter 13, verse um, 33. And in Numbers chapter 13, verse 33, it's describing something of the last statement before the Jewish people that are in the wilderness, they're going to go in to take the promised land. And then what do they do? They send in the, the 12 spies to go and see the land. Two come back, Joshua and Caleb, with a good report. The other 10 come back with a, a report that they didn't want to, to go into the land. There's lots of lies and things that the spies that report back to the Lord are coming back from that report in um, Numbers chapter 13. But the last statement that's made is that they say in, in Numbers 13, verse 33, that the Nephilim are there. They say, don't go into the land, don't conquer the land. We have seen, and you, you have the word maybe in English as giants, but the word's Nephilim, and they're saying, we have seen the, fall, the demons are there, and we're afraid. And from that statement, the people say, we're not going to go up, and that's when all this fear turns and things happen. But they say, that, which is a lie, that the Nephilim are there. That's the only other place in the Bible that you have this word used. It's an interesting thing. Joshua never talks about ever seeing the Nephilim in the land or defeating the Nephilim. Never once mentions any other place of seeing these, these fallen angels. This is an event that happens in Genesis chapter 6, previously to the flood. And the reason that it's, it's just like Adam and Eve is they broke from innocence, that covenant, they broke it, and then that was the result that they could never go back there. This is something that happened in Genesis 6, that they took their abode, the angelic fallen angels, they broke the covenant, and then they went into the daughters of man. But it's not, it never again named in the scriptures. Um, our time's already gone, so we're going to jump and we'll just close to the end. But... What I would like you to do is just have a look at a couple of verses in um, Second Peter. And these verses are such a struggle to make any concept of what they mean, unless you see it in the light of Genesis chapter 6. So Second Peter chapter 2 and verse 4 is what we're going to read. And it says, For if God did not spare the angels who sinned but cast them down to hell 
and delivered them into the chains of darkness to be reserved for darkness, or for judgment, sorry, and did not spare the ancient world, but saved Noah, one of the eight people, a preacher of righteousness, bringing in the flood on the world of the ungodly. In Second Peter chapter 2, he ties in the fallen work of these demonic angels with the Noah being saved by the flood. And what does he say about them? He did not spare them. For if God did not spare these angels who sinned, but he cast them down to where? To hell and delivered them into chains of darkness. For what reason? To be reserved for judgment. That's what happened to the demonic angels that came into the daughters of, of mankind in Genesis 6. He took them and they are now reserved in judgment, never to be let go again. So not after the millennial kingdom when there's, there's the releasing of um, demonic beings again. These particular angels are never to be released again until the time of the judgment. And he's reserving them, but he saved Noah. And just Jude verse um, 6 is another reference to these beings that are there. Jude in verse 6 says, And the angels who did not keep their proper domain, they broke the domain. The angels who did not keep their proper domain but left their own abode, he has reserved where? In everlasting chains under darkness for the judgment of the great day. These are the Nephi, or the, the, the result was the Nephilim, but the fallen angels are these demonic beings that are reserved in judgment. Verse 7 tells us more and, and makes the link. As Sodom and Gomorrah and the cities around them in a similar manner to these. What's similar about the angels and Sodom and Gomorrah? Having given themselves over to sexual immorality and gone after strange flesh and set forth as an example, suffering the vengeance of eternal fire. There's the connection as well. Sodom and Gomorrah, which got destroyed, was because of sexual immorality and homosexuality, which caused the, the great destruction of Sodom and Gomorrah. He's referencing the same thing and connecting that with the angels that are in Genesis chapter 6. These demons fell and came into the daughters of men, and that so corrupted the, the seed of woman that Satan was trying to do so that no Messiah would ever come through or to, to show us the way that, um, that he would basically won. That was the idea. So that's what we see in those, those two chapters. And just in one verse to close, just I want to read in um, Isaiah chapter 8 and verse 10. <clears throat> the result of Genesis chapter 6 and the intermarriage between these two groups of people is that it so permeated human life that sin was not just external in the actions that they did, but it also it affected every part of the inner being as well. And by doing that, God had to pronounce judgment on the earth, which is where we come to next week with the flood. But that is such the devastation of what happened here. The reason for it was because of the very fact that the first promise of the Messiah, the first look at it in Genesis chapter 3.15, Satan was directly told and he does everything in his power to wipe out the seed of the woman. If he can do that, then there can no longer be a Messiah that would come to crush his head. But in Isaiah chapter 
8 and verse 10, just leaving with this, it says this, take counsel together. Whatever plans you have or that you can think of or whoever you are, whether you're angels, fallen angels, whether you're sinners, take counsel together, but it will not come, but it will come to nothing. Okay, next one, speak the word, but it will not stand. Why? Because it says, for God is with us. That word there is exactly the, the word in, in Isaiah chapter 7, talking about the virgin, it says, Emmanuel. What it's saying is, take anything that you can do, whether you're demonic, whether you're Satan himself, take any plans, take any way of trying to disrupt God's plan, and it will not happen. Why? Because God is with us, or because of Emmanuel. And that's the, the thing that it's trying to show us in Genesis chapter 6, that with the, the top dog of Satan trying everything that he could do to change God's plan, to corrupt it so that there would never be a promise of the Messiah, that God in his wisdom and in his grace is always far above any plans that man or angelic beings can have. God's purposes will always come through. And when you see how that works all the way through the Old Testament, you can absolutely be guaranteed that it's a promise that we can take into the New Testament, that we also know that we're going to see the Lord Jesus Christ one day. It's not a, is it, is it an if or a maybe? It is, it's going to be done. And just as the proof of that in the Old Testament, with all that devastation and no way out, God got through all that, and we have the Messiah today. Let's just close in prayer. Father, we, we come before you, Lord, and we, we thank you for your plans and for your amazing words, Lord, that you would even say to Satan himself that there would be one that would come who would crush his head, Lord, that would bruise his head. And Satan would know that, Lord, and do all in his power and in his might, Lord, to upset the things that you say. But we thank you, Lord, that your word is far outweighing, Lord, is stronger, is is far more powerful than anything that man or demon can do against you, Lord. We thank you that what you say is eternal and that it is right, Lord. We also know that as individuals, Lord, you may take a, you may allow things to happen or that we might be taken out of the way. But Lord, we thank you so much that your plan and your purposes for your glory and for us, Lord, to be part of your family as sons of daughters of God, that we'll be into your presence, Lord, and we thank you so much that you have set all of this up, Lord, and we know the end from the beginning. It might be a hard road, it might be troublesome, Lord, but we know that you have set this all up for your glory and for your kingdom, Lord, and that we'll be with you in your presence, Lord. Help us just to take that, we pray today in Jesus' name. Amen.